Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Olive Bakuro was born in Burundi in 1996. Her early childhood was spent in Tanzanian refugee camps. There, she first fell in love with education and began to dream of building her future. Emily Kerr has her story. Olivia and her twin sister were six months old when their parents packed up a few things for themselves and their three daughters and fled into the night. I don't remember much, but I remember my parents decided that they needed to get away one day, um, and it was like pretty late at night. I think the biggest thing that made them move out was the uncertainty of the country. You know, it's just constant wars, and you just never know. One time, you're in total peace, and then you hear, oh, you know, you're going to die. I know from what um, they told us, when they first decided to go, it was my uncle, my dad, his wife, and their three little kids, and then us. So they would, like, travel ahead to figure out which route was safer, Um, and then they would come to get us. At this point, we're, like, hiding somewhere in the wild. And then if such place was safe to go, they would come to get us and we would go this way. It was a dangerous trek because when you go up a hill, the soldiers, they can see you and they're just, they're going to shoot. And never mind you having children and they're crying. That doesn't help the situation. But he did tell us, like, for the most part, we weren't rowdy kids as long as we were full. You know, we weren't weren't hungry. Other people weren't so lucky. My dad told us, like, there was this one woman whose child was crying, and the soldiers that were getting close, they left her behind, and as a result, like, she was murdered. The worst thing about this whole scenario is the group of people that was with the mom and the child were probably maybe five minutes away from where this was happening. And I asked my parents, like, why didn't you guys help out? And my folks were like, well, back then, it was every man for himself. If you didn't do everything in your power to save your family, you were going to die. If I stayed behind, how would I know that your mom or the kids would have made it? Because she had just had you six months prior. You know, she hadn't even healed, and now she's having to walk miles and miles and miles on end but that was pretty traumatizing and to me the way they share it you don't even see any emotions it's like they're pretty scarred the family made their way through many refugee camps in tanzania before eventually settling in Nduta. here oliva began going to school it was a 45 minute walk away and those who showed up late were beaten So every morning, she would check her sundial, a stick in the ground, and make sure that she left when the shadow was at the correct spot. Oliva loved school and worked hard to get her education. Many girls in her community didn't have the option to go to school, 
but her father wanted a different life for her and her sisters. He used to tell us to go to school because of the environment um, we were brought up in. Back then, women are not encouraged to go to school, and it's pretty normal. Instead, you're taught how to clean, how to cook, how to do the, like the house matters. And my dad did not want that for us. I think his greatest fear was if he died and we didn't have anything that is for us, you know, how we then survive, because it's just women. And his other fear was, what if, like, we got with um, abusive husbands? And over there, you got to remember, once your husband pay your dowry, you kind of belong to him, you know, and you can't, like, go back to your family. And he was like, should you fall in this situation, if you heavily rely on your husband, you're not going to survive that. And we grew up thinking, well, dang, I don't want that for me. And I remember seeing, like, domestic violence in the camp. And it was, like, normalized. And also, I low-key did not want to live in my husband's shadow. Like, you can even go to any African community. You will never hear anybody address, like, the wife in her name. It's always, for example, uh, my mother. Um, it's always Mama Bukuru or Jacob's wife. I grew up thinking that was her name. It was until here I learned her name was Estella. I didn't know that. Um, that, I, I'm sorry, I cannot live in my husband's shadow. Like, I want to accomplish things, you know, rich goals. I want to make a name for myself. I want people to call me Dr. Olivia Bukuru. I want my kids to actually know my name. It made me just want to go to school. And I was like the best, well, one of the best at my school. You know, I never got like bad grades. Well, we call it bad marks. If you got bad marks, you got hit. And you know, at the end of um, like each semester, they counted like who was the top. And it was the only the, the top students were celebrated. They were celebrated in the sense that they actually got like things that they could take home and food. I became second. I got like a little plate and a little like tea plate. And then I got a soda and then bread. It wasn't really bread. It was, um, you know, mandazis. Um, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a pastry, like a donut, but with that, like the sugary stuff. It's like a bread. And that was a big deal. The only other time I saw like people actually provide sodas was during Christmas times or when the mom had given birth or like on a special occasion. So you knew like you made it. And also my parents, they raved me a little bit, you know, why not? I felt like a little celebrity almost. That always like that experience always like pushed me to be the best I, I could be. My folks were farmers, like, during my earliest memories, and those were, like, our responsibilities. We had, like, ducks. You attend to them. You, you have to. And then you go fetch water, get the water from, like, um, like a lake before they built um, this giant well. You had to walk all the way to the lake, get the water, put it on your head, come back home. That was a pain. 
that one was like counterproductive because we were younger and you have a bucket on top of your head. Come on. By the time you get home, there's like no water in there. We would go in the woods to fetch firewood and stuff. I enjoyed fetching firewood. It was like an adventure. And we were pretty young. So you had to do that like several times because we couldn't carry a whole lot at that point. We had to do that. I remember I probably did maybe three or four trips or until like outside was dark. And by that point, my parents would be at home. They would probably have made beans, more yams if we had any, and then we'd eat and then call it a day. Do it again, do it again in the morning. When Olivia was five or six years old, she started hearing stories about a place called America. Everyone in the camp began talking about going there and achieving the American dream. This was different from the lives that they were living in every possible way. We used to think America was heaven. <laughs> there's no violence. There's like no poverty. You could go to school. You could actually reach your goals and you'll be celebrated. For me, like, I was just thinking, like, I'll never be hungry. Like, like I'm not going to hear any more, like, gunshots or, like, violence. And my parents were all excited. Hearing those stories put misery aside or, like, anything bad that you were going through aside. And you just wanted to believe these things. It wasn't until maybe age seven or eight was that, like, even possible because we started seeing different colored people coming to town or the village and they were like doing interviews when we started seeing that like some of those stories started to become like possible a little bit and by like later at eight it was finally our turn I don't remember what they were asking because I was pretty young they were just asking about like our life in general where we were born what our life was like and Remember, at this point, my parents had already been in in and out of refugee camp for over 40 years, and there was, like, literally no chances of them going back home. I remember being interviewed, like, we were so excited, but my dad was so nervous. Prior to him doing that interview, he had started, like, learning English on his own. The goal with that was he wanted to be, like, the first one to know whether he was going to this new land or not. There was this one community thing where um, you'd go to get food and they had like post uh, plastered people's names who had like passed the screening. I remember a whole bunch of people in a crowd looking for those names. And I remember my dad coming out like the crowd excited saying, oh my gosh, like we're going to the new land. One day, um, I don't know what day it was, I just knew we're leaving. We had gotten rid of everything we own, which wasn't much. Um, we gave like the neighbors the plates we used to use, the pots and pans. We gave away like our clothes. And then when we got to the newer transit, they did give us clothes. The first time we have ever gotten in a car, they brought this like school bus like vehicle and they felt like a whole bunch of people in there and I remember my dad 
was sitting like like on this side, my mom there, and then they're holding like the little kids, and then I'm sitting here, and we're all holding each other, going to this newer camp. That's where you did like your your physical, your screening, further like questionnaire stuff like that. Um, I don't know how long it took, but that was like the best bumpy ride I ever had. We probably drove for hours, and I remember like the sun was like setting down is when we had like arrived to this new area. But in the newer camp, the much better camp, we had our own house. It wasn't like too big, but it was big enough. In that house, I remember it was like divided into two rooms. So like the parents' room and the kids' room. And then we had like a kitchen. I don't remember how long we were there for. During this time, you're still doing screening, more testing, all these things. Um, it's in the background, but you're not like attending every single day to do that. And we ate like a whole bunch of rice over there. Mmm, a new change. Uh, like good rice, not the ones that has um, like rocks in it. <laughs> um, and also um, actual meat. Like, like you didn't get like a piece of meat. Like you got like an actual meat, like by yourself. Um, also, back home, we all ate from one plate, <laughs> but in the new environment, like, everybody had their own plate, and if you weren't full, you could actually go back and get more. Hey, I was thinking we're going to heaven, because, come on, for the first time, we're eating different foods at the same time. You ate meat during celebrations. You ate, like, all these other stuff during celebration. I was actually happy. You could see the light in my eyes. Like, I was really, really happy. And, like, where we were at, like, I didn't see any violence over there. It was actually, like, a really nice place. They had lights, like, actual lights. They actually had good bathrooms, and they had, like, clean water. We didn't have to cook the water because back in the camp, you had to, like, boil the water. You couldn't just drink it because it wasn't safe. And then I remember the day we went, they brought the same van again, which took us to this little flight to Kenya. Um, the flight was pretty scary because I've never been in the air. Yeah, and the, the little flight, we didn't even fly all the way in the sky like you would here. You could see people below, but it was pretty short because the camp we were in wasn't that far from Kenya, but it was pretty scary. Like, the entire time, most people in that flight were praying. <laughs> yeah, they were worried because, oh, my God, you know. Olive was 10 years old when her family landed in Newburgh, Oregon in 2007. Both of her parents got jobs, but they struggled to make ends meet. Their family was growing, and they were all trying to figure out how to navigate their new lives. There's eight of us. It's five girls and three boys. My mom was a janitor. She still is. I'm proud of her. She's, you know, come from long ways. And my dad was also a janitor at that point. I think they were making, like, $9.25, if not 10 Both of them worked, and they didn't really make much to, like, support us. We were living very, 
improvish life, but much better compared to the camp. When they used to work, they used to experience a lot of racism, and they didn't even know that that's what they was experiencing. And now that they're aware and they know like a little bit of English, they're in a in better like place to like speak for themselves. If you abuse them, like they're gonna say something. Versus when we first came, they didn't know what was happening. But because he can't like defend himself, they would just tell him, go home, you're fired, things like that. And my dad is like a good employee. Olivia and her siblings were tested to see which grades they should be placed in. Olivia was in fifth grade back home, but she scored very high in math, so they decided to put her into sixth grade. She was also put into ESL to begin learning English. With the language barrier, she and her siblings faced some early struggles, beginning with their commute to school each day. We had a bus that come to get us to go to school before we realized that we used to walk to the school. We walked because I thought that's what we were supposed to do, but we didn't know, like, when school started is the problem. Sometimes we either went too early and the school were still closed, and sometimes we went too late. Yeah, I remember my, my first ESL teacher, Jean Harmon. I still am in contact with her. She used to just use Pictionary. She drew a picture to get us to understand what she was saying to us. And she drew, <laughs> she drew our house. I knew that was her house because the house number. And then she drew the church because we lived right close to the church. She drew the little street leading back all the way to our school. Okay, I knew what that meant. And then she drew like the little bus with the number four. I was like, oh, okay. But then to make sure like we actually knew what she was telling us, she took me and my sister and a couple other Muslim kids from our little neighborhood. She walked us like outside of the school and she showed us the bus. She showed us getting onto the bus, sitting in the bus, and then the bus like going around or whatever they was doing and then coming back and pulling into the school and having us get off the bus and go inside. Okay, that was clear as day. We gotta take a bus. So that's how I knew we take a bus. I took ESL um, all the way to maybe the 10th grade. I was chosen as the um, student speaker. Um, they felt that me and my sister should share like our story because I guess there was like resilience, grit in there. I just shared my like my dream of being like this educated African woman achieving all these great things despite like our environment saying you're not going to do that. And then when me and my sister shared what we went through in the camp and us having to move here and starting from scratch, from ground zero, and like building building ourselves up, having to learn the culture, having to like immerse ourselves in the culture, doing all these things to obtain the American dream and like our goals for the next 10 years, which by the way, I'm about to reach. After she graduated from high school, Oliva started going to Portland State University 
to pursue a bachelor's degree in public health with an emphasis in community education and a minor in Black studies. My parents were so happy for me, but it was so much pressure. For me, it was like, what if I disappoint my parents? Like, they're so excited because everybody's banking on me at that point because they're thinking, oh, my gosh, when you finish, you're going to make better income. You're going to contribute into our household. We're not going to be living paycheck to paycheck. You're going to be doing all these things. And, like, hearing that's like, well, damn, I need to try hard. And then in trying hard, you're stressing yourself. That is not good. In the midst of all this, my parents were also supportive in their own ways. I know they would buy me, like, books, pens. The money did cover a lot of stuff, but sometimes I was hungry at PSU. And you know, this food is expensive. They would contribute like, $20 here and there for me to get a meal, because I practically lived on campus at Kijuna. But also, like, back then... We, I didn't have anybody to turn to, like, in my community. I didn't know anybody who was, like, a first-gen student um, doing their, their bachelor's and also has, like, a, a similar background as me. I didn't know, like, I was on my own. I kid you not. It was until, like, the second semester I got connected to the Black Studies Department, and then I met, like, my people there. Like, I met people who have, like, similar stories, and then we, like, made, like, a little club, and then we started helping each other. We're coming from a family that, like, expects great from us. I mean that in every sense of the word. I found out most of us actually came from, like, the ESL environment, and now we're having to, like, be on our own, like do like a research paper, unassisted. That was pretty difficult. I think it took like the first year. Um, I got a hang of it, like I started doing well. It was pretty hard the first year. While at Portland State University, Oliva learned about an opportunity to study abroad in Tanzania. The program explored the culture, language, and development of the region of Iringa. But it was over 20 grand or more. And that's just the program itself to go over there. I didn't have the money then, but like I knew of the opportunity maybe in 2015. And I was like, the goal was to go in 2017 during my senior year. So I had enough time to like raise the money, do a job, have the money ready. So I started working. I worked at the airport with Sky Chef, the, the people that pack your food in the airplanes. I did that every summer. It was seasonal. And then I worked at Ross. I picked up pretty much any shift that they had available whenever I was free at school. And then there was other scholarship too. And then raising money through my community to support some of the students that I was hoping to um, support within the Iringa community and also Burundi. I supported those in my village where I was born. I'm, I'm all about like education, especially for you know young women, only because I come from an environment that does not encourage women to go. And I wanted to encourage young women over there to go to school. And I do know that most people can't go to school if they don't have like the funds for it. I partner up with this church nearby our house. They donated a bunch of school supplies. I was happy that a lot of people were like, 
crawling behind me. It made me feel like, yay, I'm doing something good. For me, I honestly just wanted to empower the kids to go in, in school because I also went through like the same thing, hunger, um, not having like clothes to wear. I was just like one of them a couple of years ago, and I wanted to put like an image in their heads that they can do it. When you grow up being poor, you really believe like you really like cannot bring anything to the table other than poverty because you're like trained to believe you're nothing. And I did not want like a lot of those kids to grow up believing that. They have so much talents. You will see them do great things. And I just wanted to give them that opportunity and, you know, share my story because like I was you not that long ago. I was given an opportunity to come here. I always make it a point to give somebody else the opportunity you are also given because you never know. They could be like the best physician or whatever, but it's got to start with us. And also I want them to believe that they can do anything that they put their minds to as long as they follow through their dreams. But I do understand that, you know, for a lot of a lot of the kids I saw, some of those dreams won't be realized unless somebody is actively supporting them. Olivia was the first in her family to graduate. She was soon followed by her dad, her twin sister, and her younger sister. Her dad got a good job, and their family is living more comfortably now. But Oliva didn't want to finish with a bachelor's degree. I got my master's in public health with a emphasis in behavioral health. I'm still working on my certification for that. With that, I really wanted to address some of the um, mental health situation that I'm seeing in my community. A lot of our young kids they're mentally unstable. Even me, I went through some of the things a lot of these kids are telling me. And for me, like, I didn't have anybody to talk to. And I feel like, from what I can tell, I feel like it's like the mesh of different cultures. A lot of our young generation, like, they have so much on their plate. It's too much. And as a result, they're isolated. And in our culture, like, we don't get to talk about like our feelings. You have to bottle it up. And that's bad because eventually you're going to explode. Right now, I am doing my doctorate in public health. And I don't know yet what I'm going to focus on. But what I'm thinking of focus on is either leadership, advocacy, and equity or epidemiology, I'm going back and forth. These days, I work for EMO, Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, and I'm also the delegate for my state uh, with Refugee Congress. Right now, I'm focusing on immigration policy because I really believe for a lot of us who really did not have a country to call our own, I really feel like somebody needs to give those people a chance. I just feel like it's not fair and if we have resources to help those families, because most of them really do not have a place to go home, I think we should do that. Right now, one of the projects that I'm working on is to build like a coalition of immigrants within my community. It could be, you know, immigrants, former refugees, asylee, or anybody who 
would consider themselves a stateless person. And the whole goal with that is to equip them with skill sets, training, and also have them discuss some of the issues that they're experiencing within their community. Also, like teaching them the importance of voting, utilizing their voices, because the people that are in power, unfortunately, they're in there either because we voted them in or nobody voted at all. There's nothing in it for me other than seeing other people who are going through what I went through, like thrive. If I can give the little I have, I'm going to do it. And I hope I ingrain like my future kids or the community to always give because there's always somebody who is in need. Somebody advocated for us to come here. If they hadn't done that, we would still be there. But because they did that, I think it's imperative that I continue to pass on the baton until I can't anymore. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by Emily Kerr with audio editing and post-production by Greg Palmer. The original interview was conducted by our executive producer, the illustrious Sankar Raman, in March 2023. Thank you to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for the use of their space to record the interview. This program was funded through a generous contribution from Marie Lamfram Charitable Foundation. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads, listen live at prp.fm, or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.